Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Thomas Kwok on the topic, Matteo Ricci. This September 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. probably a bit of a timely talk because it's approaching the 20th anniversary of the communist revolution in China in 1949 and the it is the 20th anniversary this year from the Tiananmen Square massacre and um, just today Cardinal Zen who's a great cardinal um, the primate of Asia um, recently, well today, just put out a statement to the President of China asking him to enter into a dialogue with the church, or I think he used harder words than dialogue because he's that kind of man, um, to release the various Catholic bishops of China who are being held in prison, some of them, you know, aged almost 90 or beyond, ordained in the reign of Pius XII, real old battlers who are currently in jail. So it's good maybe to track back a bit and have a look at how Catholicism started in China, which in a sense is, is not true because it didn't really start with Matteo Ricci. There were Christian missions there which weren't Catholic um, back in the day, um, back in the days of Genghis Khan. Um, I'm not an expert, by the way, in, in this history. I've just read a few books and had the fortune of being able to study a bit of this stuff when I was in university. Um, there were Christian missionary, Catholic missionaries in the 13th century who were Franciscans who did get to China, but that really just fizzled out. So, really, Matteo Ricci and his era is sort of an era in the sense that we'd all be familiar with because it was the era of the Jesuits. It was the era of the Counter-Reformation, which many of you regulars here at Lumen Verum would, I guess, know a lot about if you've come to any number of talks. Um, recently on our honeymoon, and half the people here are my in-laws, <laughs> we went to the town of Loreto, which you'll all be familiar with um, due to the schools, etc., called Loreto and the fact that Our Lady's house is located there, but right near Loreto, and it's on the east coast of Italy, you can almost see another hilltop town called Macerata, and that's sort of where this story starts. That's where Matteo Ricci was born in 1552. Um, that was the same year, interestingly, that the sessions of the Council of Trent were still being held under Pope Julius III. Um, St. Ignatius of Loyola had only a few years to live by then, having founded the Jesuit order, and particularly interesting for the man, the subject of our talk tonight, is the fact that in 1552, St. Francis Xavier, the great missionary to the east, to Japan, died on a Chinese island looking at the mainland of China. It was his dream to go there. You will have heard, if you've or you may know from wide reading that Sir Francis Xavier spent a lot of time in Japan and from his experience at that point in time, it's very different now, he said, we're not going to convert Japan if we don't convert China because the Japanese 
will do everything that the Chinese do, in, in a sense. The culture will sort of, it takes its lead from what goes on in China. So he said, let's go and convert China. He never made, made it there. You all know the amazing story of him dying and, you know, basically being put into a, into a sort of a grave in, in a cave, a hole in a cave and being left there. And um, he, he was, of course, incorrupt. And when they dug him up, he, um, his tongue was still moist and his arm was gashed and it bled as if he had just died or rather that he was still alive. So that was in 1552. Matteo Ricci was born into this world of counter-reformation Europe. He was born to a well-to-do family. His dad was a pharmacist of some sort, but was also a governor at, for a period of time of the town of Maturata, which lay in the papal states. So he was also, his father, who was Giovanni Battista Ricci, was a papal magistrate, sort of a judge on behalf of the Pope in those territories. From a very early age, Matteo had a private tutor. Um, he was homeschooled, as a lot of people were back then, who had the fortune to be like him. Uh, his tutor was a priest named Niccolo Benciveni, and from the age of, well, from birth to age seven, Richie studied at his side, um, and really they focused on reading, writing, and Latin. And that, was, that was about it. And in a sense, that's all, that's all you need when you're seven years old. Uh, very soon, by papal, I believe it's by papal edict, or sorry, by St. Ignatius' edict, a Jesuit school was set up in Maturata. And Richie went there, Father Benciveni became a Jesuit, and Richie continued learning the whole classical curriculum of the Jesuit schools adding to his skills in addition to Latin and everything else, Greek and mathematics and everything else. And he excelled not just academically, but as a man, as a, as, as a person, as, as a, and, and was really formed into a man as Jesuit schools used to do until recently. It was a counter-reformation education, so it was the cutting edge. He, the, a great part of his education at one point, maybe not at this time, but later on, which was to serve him very well, was the learning of memory techniques by using mnemonics or memory by association. And there's a great book written by a historian named Jonathan Spence um, called the, pa the Memory Palace of Matteo Ricci. And one of these techniques they used was to literally construct in your imagination a palace where each room would have objects in it which would remind you of certain things. To me, it sounds, I tried doing this and it's impossible. I forget the first room by the time I get to the second and I don't know what I'm doing by then. But these guys were trained. And of course, from a Jesuit perspective, it's very easy in a sense to do that because the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius focus very much on using the imagination to put yourself into the gospel. You know, they, they, they use the powers of the mind to imagine what it would feel like to walk on the ground next to Jesus and what it would smell like to be on um, the hill when Jesus was delivering the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so for him, and that's something we'll come back to as we see his journey to China and, and what he achieved then, how he impressed people. Basically, 
Richie's dad was a bit of an ambitious guy. Richie was the oldest son and the father wanted him to continue the family profession in law and sent him, sent him off to Rome to learn law, which he did, but he also bumped into other Jesuit, other, well, not others as in that he was a Jesuit, but he bumped into Jesuit priests there, of course. And basically on the Feast of Assumption in 1571, famous year, that was the Battle of Lepanto, I believe, 1571, Robert. Um, he entered the Jesuit order as a novice and like many young men, I guess, told his dad after he'd joined. So Giovanni Battista was not actually very impressed and got on a horse and made his way for Rome to try and convince him not to become a priest. Fortunately, he was struck by a terrible fever and was completely bedridden, which he took as a sign from God. Um, that Richie was to be a priest. He wrote to Richie saying, you go ahead, I'll deal with my loss. And he went home. Pretty much that's the last he ever saw of his father because from then, you know, Richie did his, the first part of his studies. As you know, Jesuits used to have a 15-year seminary period instead of six or seven or eight. And he did his first part in Europe amongst a microcosm of Europe. He had Portuguese, there's Spanish, Hungarians, English, all un united in the words of Vincent Cronin, which is the other biography that is really good and that I'm basing this talk on. Um, so he's there in, in Rome, in the words of Vincent Cronin, linked by a common overriding belief symbolised in Latin. And no doubt for him, they were symbolised by their common goal of winning the world for Christ the King. All these different Jesuits probably went on to be martyrs in great, you know, great martyrs in far-flung places. I don't know. I don't know who they were. But for Ritchie, his thoughts were set on China. So after much thought and much and various requests and haranguing the, the superiors, the general of the society sent Ritchie to go to India. That was in 1577. He went with another Jesuit, Michael Ruggieri, who was also a lawyer. And Ruggieri sort of went on to Macau, which you may know is an, is an island off the coast of China, near Hong Kong, which was a Portuguese colony until 1997 or 1998. I can't quite remember. 97 was when Hong Kong. Hong Kong went back in 97, so I think it was the year after. Now, the living conditions on the boats there are described in great detail in, in this book. It's quite interesting. It's almost a point of sainthood to actually make it there. Um, a letter from Nicholas Spinola, who was a friend of Ritchie, stated that those desirous of travelling to India should not be too tied to their own lives, but they should be ready to die, having great faith in the Lord and a great desire for suffering. For here, one learns to know oneself by experience, not by theoretical reflection. He basically had men in stalls, dark, smelly, no real fresh water, um, you know, hundreds of men in a very small space. And interestingly, the, the sources, not from Ritchie, but other Jesuits of what they were doing on the boats, shows Jesuits doing things like singing the office together, which Jesuits are not known for after a certain point in time because they have special dispensations not to say the office together for better or for worse. 
So Richie ended up in India, in Goa, which was a Portuguese colony, and finished off his studies. He was ordained in India by the Bishop of Cochin. And then he was eventually sent off to Macau to meet up with Michael Ruggieri and to begin his studies in Chinese. When he got there, he learned in three months what more Chinese than Ruggieri had learned in three or four years. Um, that was the enormity of his intellect and no doubt um, a result of his memory techniques coming to the fore. Now, China at the time was in the middle of what's called the Ming Dynasty. That's, they went from about 1368 to 1644, a pretty broad era of time, but it was, it was China's renaissance in a sense, agriculturally, militarily, economically, politically. They were very advanced and they thought they were very advanced to the point where you know, they stopped doing naval missions and I'm, I'm not sure about the history behind this, but there was thought going around that they had reached the apex of civilization. So not very easy to convert people who believe that they are at the apex of civilization, and not only that, that they are at the middle of the whole world. To, until today, the word for China in Chinese means the Middle Kingdom, as in that's the centre and everyone else are barbarians. Um, Ruji, well, another, part, another interesting aspect of the Ming Dynasty is that it was very hierarchical. The founder of the Ming Dynasty put in a whole lot of court processes and made a very hierarchical system, um, which in a sense meant that it was, it was great for someone like Richie to go there. He was an Italian aristocrat who was a Jesuit and obviously Catholic. He understood hierarchy, he understood authority, he understood court ritual to a degree. But it was a while till they could actually leave from Macau to get to China, which is sort of, you know, very close to Macau, but so far in, in the sense that they tried to get in many times, but they were just rebuffed. They couldn't do it. And in a sense, I think it's a lesson of grace for them because it was all through his life, it was only when he was called, only when he was given opportunities that you know, he had them. He, he tried to put effort into lots of things, but it goes to show that you can be the smartest man on earth and you can only go so far if you don't have grace and if God doesn't want you to do something. <coughs> In 1583, a Chinese soldier just, just turned up on the doorstep of their residence with a written invitation from a man named Wang Pan, who was a Mandarin. <coughs> Mandarins are, as you, as you might know, public servants of a very high degree, not a race of people. And this Mandarin invited them to a town called Jiaoqing in Canton province, which is down south where we get sweet and sour pork. Now, um, just to give you a bit of context, China is a very big country and probably like a country like America, it's extremely diverse in geography. Okay, that's the map of China there. You've got Hong Kong and Macau down here. Jiaoxing would have been just in the inland here, so not too far north. I sometimes wonder what language he actually spoke, because they would have spoken Cantonese then. When he, by the time he got up north, he would have been speaking another dialect. But in its written form, it's all the same. One interesting thing at this point is that before they entered into China, they shaved their heads, shaved their beards, and dressed as Buddhist monks. Now, this will seem weird, and it would be... I mean, 
Jesuits, maybe some Jesuits do that now, but it was a very different context back then. The rule of the, the Jesuit rule states that what Jesuits wear, their clerical clothing, should mimic what priests in good standing in whatever their country in wear. Um, in Australia, that means collar, suit, or you know whatever. In 18th century France, it may have meant you know too long tabs. I'm not sure. I'm just these are examples. The thing is, in China, there were no priests, and therefore they could, you know, they in a sense by law could have this flexibility. And what that allowed them to do is identify themselves through their clothing with a defined social class in China, which was really the most logical thing you could do. And it served them well because what it meant was that they could use a loophole in Chinese law that said, if you're a foreigner, we'd chuck you out, but you can stay if you conform in all ways to being Chinese, in language, in dress, in, in what you eat and how you behave. If you do that, you can stay here. And that's something that went on throughout history, right down to the time of Arlette's great-great-grandfather, who was... great-great-grandfather, who was a red-haired Belgian who was completely Chinese in dress and in language and who lived in China as an official court Mandarin and as a governor. That would be a fascinating talk to one day. Excuse me, I'm a bit hoarse. Richie wrote to his friends, Would that you'd see me as I am now. I've become a Chinaman. In our clothing, in our looks, in our manners, in everything external, we've made ourselves Chinese. As it would turn out, we'll find out later, it was a bit of a wrong tactic. Jonathan Spence said at the time, their decision to dress as monks was calculated because with the Chinese intrigued by things they brought, such as foreign, as prisms and clocks and books, you know, to come in droves to their little house. He could then engage them in conversation on religious matters. The painting of the Virgin and the child displayed on the altar in the chapel would give further visual stimulus to his words. And that's basically what he did. They set up shop in a sense and just took visitors, talked to people, became good friends with Wang Pan, which was very helpful for them. And help them to understand two things. Firstly, that hierarchy, and not only hierarchy in the sense of power, but also academia, that's people who hold degrees, was extremely important to the Chinese. When they were given a plot of land, the people who had control of what was being built were graduates. There are bachelors, masters or doctors. That's how we'd conceptualise it. Um, and the second thing flowing on from that was that Ritchie realised the importance of the printed word in China. How did they get to China? It was through a printed, well, a written letter. When Wang Pan became good friends with them, he gave them basically a, a little script to hang up on their door and people came from all around the village just to see this letter of authority. Later on, Wang Pan would give them two wooden tablets. On one was, was, was inscribed the words, the pagoda of the flower of the saints, which is what they called their church. It was dedicated to Our Lady, the flower of the saints. And on the other, in Chinese characters, they came from the West to bring us knowledge of paradise. Chinese at that time, and in this form, was a monosyllabic language. Each, 
they, they didn't combine words as such to create concepts. Each word had a very distinct meaning of its own, and it was a very concise language, which made it very difficult for someone from outside to learn because there's so many nuances to what one word can mean. By the way, these things you'll see in Chinese churches or even in Vietnamese churches sometimes, characters on either side of the altar. To me, this is a really good example of true enculturation where Chinese, which is a language that can be written and have meaning as a text, but also in itself be calligraphic art and in itself have a pictorial meaning, and which can be written vertically, to me, lends itself very well to altar decorations. Uh And there's a very good example of good enculturation as opposed to bad enculturation, which is what we can talk about later. Because this is a bit of a theme. A lot of people use Ritchie as an example of supposed enculturation. I think nothing could be further from the truth. But we can talk about that as we go on. Were there many different Chinese languages? Like, was there such a thing as standardised Chinese then, or was it... No, the written language was, was standard. So people from Canton and people from Beijing could read that. But And if you were educated, you could speak the language of the court. That's why we call Chinese Mandarin, because it's the language of the court. I mean, that's a modern thing. It could have gone the other way, and Cantonese could have been the language. Cantonese is apparently more of a pure form of Chinese and apparently what they would have spoken back in back in the day in the Tang Dynasty, which was the height of you know poetry and culture, um, and which is the era in which Korea and Japan got a lot of their culture. I mean Japanese kimonos are Tang Dynasty Chinese vestments in a sense. Um, that would have sounded like Cantonese, but you know China, Korea, Japan, Vietnam could all communicate through the written word in the same way that Europe could communicate through Latin. And in fact, a book that I'll introduce you to later, which Richie wrote, called The True Meaning of the Lord of Heaven. I mean, he wrote this in Chinese. Um, Amazing. Christianity came into Korea through this book by Mandarins in Korea picking this up and reading about the true meaning of the Lord of Heaven, seeking out priests, the power of the written word all through Asia. Richie would have known because he spent his time, he studied the main religions or the main belief systems. Confucianism, which he didn't see really as a religion, which is important for something we'll talk about later. Taoism and Buddhism. Now, he would have known from his studies of Taoism that the sixth level of the ten courts of purgatory in the Taoist worldview was reserved for those who had shown no respect for written paper. That by itself had it had a whole level of hell for itself. So recognising the power of the written word, Ritchie eventually became, uh, began to translate various basic catechetical texts into Chinese. One of these was a very simple catechism, but the problem is, how do you translate all these concepts of Catholicism into Chinese, which has heard nothing about it? A good friend of mine, his father is Japanese, And he said, the problem is in Japan, you know, there's just nothing, there's no context. Like here, even if you're not Christian, you'll have streets that are named, which have a Christian history to it. There's just an overall, you know, sense or cultural sort of 
cloud of, of Christianity somewhere there. It just doesn't exist. Yesterday, it made news in Zenit. If, I don't know if you check Zenit. It made news that there's been a Japanese translation of the Catholic Encyclopedia. And I think it was only in 2007 that the Catechism was translated, translated into Japanese. I mean, this is... And that's not because they were just not hardworking, because the Japanese are not a lazy people. It's just that there, there were genuinely translation problems. And if you go back in the news, you'll see that this is an actual linguistic issue. So what he had to do, what Richie had to do, was to appropriate the linguistic style of the Chinese things he was reading and use that to transmit Christian concepts. So while we're used to reading catechisms which say, who made you? Answer, God made you. Um, why did God make you? To know, love and serve him and to you know, be happy for him forever in the next life. These things, they're true, they're good. Richie had no problem with doing this, with, with teaching in that manner, but he, it just wouldn't make sense in China. So what they did, and this is just one example, they would work by similes, such as this classic one from his first catechism. Those who adore heaven, which is what Confucians did or they purported to do, to adore heaven. Those who adore heaven instead of the Lord of heaven are like a man who venerates the palace of the emperor instead of the emperor himself. You know? I mean, it sounds like it's fortune cookie type of phrasing because, it, you know, those fortune cookies try to mimic this chinese sort of phrasing. So it's things like that. And you could almost imagine the monosyllabic nature of these people just going, duk, 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 conclusion. And that was the way he sort of got around it. By the time he got to this, it was, this book here, The True Meaning of the Lord of Heaven, it's much more. It's much deeper. I mean, this is deep classical Chinese that an Italian from a hilltop town um, which plays second fiddle to Loretta, 30 kilometres up the road, <laughs> has managed to learn. They printed 1,200 copies of this catechism. This is by 1584, so not long into their stay. And they had to print more due to the high demand. A year later, by then, they had 20 converts. But at the same time, they were putting up with a lot of attacks, a lot of xenophobia, and the whole bureaucratic machine. It's not new that China is a big... Um, not democracy, bureaucracy. It's anything but a democracy. A huge bureaucracy. It's not something new. It's not something that came with the communists. It's there in their you know, national psyche, if you want to use that sort of word. Around this time, you see, Wang Pan sort of protected them. When they were accused of things, he would stick up for them in court, and he was the governor, so he got his way. People knew that the Jesuits were accepted because they had, they had decrees that came from Wang Pan. So it was a bit of a bother when Wang Pan was promoted to be the governor of another province. This happened in 1588. Now before he left, he did something very interesting, which is something that we're going to come back later. One of the few things that I've said that we'll come back to later. Wang Pan built a sort of memorial of himself, a statue of himself, where they put his shoes and his, you know, a book of his good deeds as relics. And they burnt candles in front of it. 
and they put Richie's statue and Michael Ruggieri's statue on the other side. In Richie's experience, this was not an act of worship. It was an, an act of historical commemoration. This will come in later when we talk a bit about the Chinese rights controversy. So this is why he's still alive, Wong Yeah, that's right. It's like a, a memorial to himself. That's right. That's right. Veneration type of... That's right. Like setting up a statue of the unknown soldier, putting a wreath before it. Um, the, you know, the unextinguishable flame at the Anzac Memorial. That type of stuff. Yes, I think it's a bit more than that, and I feel uncomfortable about it myself. And certainly, as we'll talk about later, the popes did crack down on this type of stuff for Catholics, but we'll talk about that later. Um, Ruggieri went back to Macau. He, he didn't really, wasn't really cut out for missionary life in China, and was replaced by another Jesuit called Almeida, who was um, much more of a, you know, much more suited to that sort of life. By the end of Almeida's first year, with Richie, there were 18 converts, 18 more converts, and amongst these, the first few female converts. And this is an important point. One of Richie's main problems was that, due to the way Chinese society was structured, he didn't have any access to women. He wasn't available to talk to women because they were in the home and really invisible. He probably never saw a woman. And he recognised that it's through women that the faith is passed down in the home. It's through women that the faith is consolidated in people's hearts. Um, and, you know, without this, he was really not able to access the wildfire of, of conversion that could probably happen if he did have access to women. He had to deal with men who would sit there and just argue with him for hours and hours and hours, and he would just talk and talk and talk. And Not many people talk about his sanctity, and he's not a saint or even a blessed. No one even thinks about his spiritual life, but I, to me, his holiness is him sitting there and putting up with people, asking all sorts of questions, and just putting up with them and being friendly. That great story about, was it the Cure of Ars, who used to, you know... Talk to these people. St. Francis de Sales, people would come in and talk to him. And the secretary said, look, how do you put up with this feeling? He goes, come around here and look under the desk. And there were nail marks underneath because he'd just sit there and couldn't stand talking to these people, but he put up with it. And Richie did that for 27 years, non-stop, through Lent, missing meals, um, not going to sleep, having to, you know, drink alcohol at the same time as, as part of, you know, social grace and social ritual and yeah but in a sense that was very important for him to do because he was there to talk to people he was there to answer their questions he was an apologist and this this talk is i think very instructive about what it is to be an apologist he met people where they were he didn't try and you know shout something at them when they weren't ready to be shouted at you know Richie knew that you couldn't go through the streets in China shouting, convert to Christ, because Franciscans tried that, not knowing that while that could be fine for the streets of Spain or Portugal or Italy, in China, the only people who did that type of thing were political dissidents. So, you know, categories of how people see 
society and culture were very important for Ritchie to understand in order to tailor his method of evangelization. In any case, they were chucked out of Jiaoting by the new governor and they went to a new place named Shaozhou. They set up house here, thankfully. They were given a pretty good piece of land. But at the behest of a local Buddhist monastery, in 1592, a gang of about 20 local men who'd been gambling down the road and who were armed with torches and axes basically stormed their house. Richie called his household into the house and tried to shut the door on the attackers. He was hit with an axe and they basically all stormed. They were, the house was being stormed. They, they came in, locked all their doors, and Richie jumped out of a window and basically created a big commotion to scare off these people who thought that he received that he had reached a point where he could get help from people. Um, Richie ended up from jumping out the window with a limp in his leg his whole life, which I, I just tell this story because it's interesting that he ends up with a limp like St. Ignatius who had a limp his whole life. And I'm very sure he would have known this and thought about it as he struggled with this his whole life in a foreign country. But what it also showed was that dressing up as monks wasn't really getting them anywhere in a sense. They found out that no one respected them. On the way to Shaozhou, they almost stayed at a monastery on the command of the local Mandarin. And they found that these weren't places of devotion or, or meditation. They were full of people who couldn't make it to jobs, prisoners who were free, brigands, and no one respected, at least in that part of China, Buddhist monks. So with the permission of Father Valignano, who was the superior, and only with his permission, Richie never did anything without the permission of his superior, Richie exchanged the robes of a monk for what he described as a dress of purple silk. The hem of the robe and the collar and the edges are bordered with a band of blue silk, a little less than a palm wide. The same decoration is on the edges of the sleeves which hang open, rather in the style that is common in Venice. There's a wide sash of purple silk trimmed in blue which is fastened around the same robe and it's the robe hang comfortably open. Richie wrote apologetically to Father Valignano, saying, To gain greater status, we now don't walk along the streets on foot, but having have ourselves carried in sedan chairs on men's shoulders, as men of rank are accustomed to do. For we have great need of this type of prestige in this region, and without it would make no progress among the Gentiles. For the name of foreigners and priests is considered so vile in China that we need this and similar other devices to show them that we are not priests as vile as their own. Well, Richie found that he fitted into a specific class. There was a class called graduate theologian. <laughs> And they were basically devoted to talking about religious or esoteric topics. And he found this out when he went to Nanjing. This was after Shaozhou. They went to another town called Nanjing, which is, a, which is the southern capital. Beijing is the northern capital. Nanjing is the southern capital. It was the site of a terrible massacre in the 1930s by the Japanese. And a place of much suffering, but a very beautiful town, which he compared to Florence, 
Um, and he had a friend there who basically said, look, it's really good. There is a class here. You can be a graduate theologian. It would have been great for Richard to find this out because he knew that he could fit in somewhere and operate within the machine of Chinese society. Gaining passports and acceptance to reside in all these different places had been difficult. And initially they weren't allowed to stay in Nanjing. He shifted and went to a town near there called Nanchang, which was at that time known as being an intellectual powerhouse of, of Buddhist philosophy. He didn't have any contacts there at that time, but he, he did know one man who was a doctor which, whom he went to visit. And basically, one of the most famous stories about Richie's memory comes from this incident. There were basically about 11 or 12 men at this party, and it would have been you know, a grand affair, lots of food. And one of them said, look, I hear that you have a pretty good memory. Here's a book of my poems. Why don't you select one and memorise it for us? And Richie took the book of poems and flicked through it, and he put it down, and he proceeded to recite the whole book instantly off the top of his head. And they thought he was tricking them and that he'd seen a published version. So all the men got together and wrote out 500 Chinese characters with no logical connection whatsoever and gave it to him. They wrote it down, most probably on parchment, sort of like this. And he looked at the 500 characters and put it down after a few minutes and recited them back, 500, start to finish, in the exact order. And then he recited them backwards, just to show that he really meant business. So Richie was basically making a name for himself. Chinese people, as you'll know even now from our society, are very impressed by education. They prize it above anything. They, they value people who have skills like this. And in Richie's case, it was important because memory was an important thing for people to have to pass the graduate examinations to become court officials or mandarins. So people in power would want Richie to be tutors to their sons. And what a perfect way to make friends and show in subtle ways or, if needed be, in, in more overt ways, Christian doctrine. This is what they were trying to do. Richie's main prize, his eye was on the main prize, which was to convert the emperor of China. Now, this is a man that no one could even lay eyes upon. And we'll see soon that he sort of gets close. He became very thirsty to get to Beijing. He wanted what happened, I guess. He doesn't say this, and I haven't read his diaries, but he wanted what, would, what happened with Constantine, an imperial edict which would protect Christianity in China. And with this freedom, hopefully, it would grow. He convinced a friend who was going to Beijing for the Emperor's birthday to allow him to travel with him. He went to the Imperial Palace but didn't get in. Further, he found when he was there that the palace was completely drooping in corruption. It was controlled by court eunuchs who wielded extreme power over the whole of the Chinese bureaucratic system and did so with extreme bitterness and corruption. It was a 
you know, quite simply, it was very different. If we think Australian politics or British politics is corrupt, this was a whole other kettle of fish. And quite apart from not wanting to bribe people, Richie didn't even have the cash to do it. <laughs> to make matters worse, at that point in time, China was at war with Japan and Korea, and any foreigner was seen as a suspicious element in Chinese society. So after going all the way to the northern capital, they came all the way back down to the south. That's not, you know, on a train, that's 17 hours. Imagine doing that on horseback. Or by boat, sorry, I should be more accurate. So defeated in his attempts, Richie turned back south, went back to Nanjing. This time in Nanjing, people wanted him to be there. They all wanted him to be his best friend because his fame had spread throughout the whole of China. You know, whereas here we tend to revere the rebel, Chinese society more intelligently reveres the intelligent, as we spoke before. So in Nanjing, Richie was visited by all the highest ranking mandarins. He met the Minister of Finance, President of the Academy of the Nobles, and importantly, because he was into printing, the censor. All of them urged him to stay. And having lost the opportunity to reside in Beijing, he took up the opportunity. Richie then had a new tactic. He said, basically, guys, I'm opening up a mathematics school. Because he'd been trained under Clavius, who was the best mathematician in Europe at the time. And his idea, obviously, was to show people Western science and through that get them to think about Western religion and to see that there's good in that as well. He had two students and he began to teach. He also delved into astronomy, which was... You know, at that time, I don't think we they split up subjects that much as we do now. You know, it was the universal man. You know, the Vieux Universitas was the goal of the Jesuit. The Renaissance man who knew everything, who could paint and sing and um, sing a good mass. He, he realised, though, that astronomy was a bit of an underdeveloped area in Chinese science. And he gained access to the observatory. I've got a picture of the Beijing Observatory. This is probably from a few hundred years after. You can still see it if you if you drive along in Beijing. I remember I was there and I was like, oh, I wonder what those metal things are. It was only years later I found they were all Jesuit. Well, some of them were Jesuit instruments and some were there from Muslims who went to China and left because they were very advanced in astronomy as well and left them there. But they'd been... Basically, there was a certain degeneration in astronomical knowledge, and the Chinese basically used it as a tool of astrology. So, despite wanting all this um, knowledge of mathematics, etc., astronomy had fallen by the wayside and was very much a superstitious practice. Richie's fame grew in Nanjing through these type of engagements. He debated publicly with Buddhist scholars. But it was really, he became frustrated at the misunderstanding of his arguments. And an example of this was, Richie was asked by a famous Buddhist monk whether he knew about the movement of the stars because he'd been up there or whether he'd dragged them down. Now, Richie replied in Thomistic style that it was neither, and that by observing through the senses, you can form images of the heavens in one's intellect and then use reason to reach scientific conclusions. This is the, you know, we almost... Well, maybe not now. A lot of us see these types of 
logical processes as natural. But you have to understand in China, it was just a completely different way of thinking. So it may sound stupid even to, to think, oh, have you been up to the stars or have you dragged them down? But we can't really see it as stupid. And he certainly wouldn't have. That was just the reality of how they were. Rumours spread after that that, Rich and, that Richie had the heavens within his body. <laughs> and, um, you know, it just shows the big gap between what he was trying to achieve and the country he was in and the ways of thinking. Translating from the West to the East was much more than a question of language then. It was a much broader question. Ritchie was joined by two more Jesuits. It was 1600 by now. He was relieved that he had his new companions because, as I said before, he spent all day arguing with people who didn't believe in what he believed. And finally, he had people who he could speak Italian to and just talk about the weather, or whatever they did. And I always think of the first line of Confucius's Analects, which is his famous book, Is it not a great joy to have friends come from afar? It would have been very good for him. Ritchie and the Jesuits received great grace through the Ministry of Public Works. They were offered a very large property, which everyone recognised to be a haunted house. Many graduates had been, had been offered this house, but the spirits were you know, too great for them to handle. And everyone was very surprised when Richie and his men basically went in, took down the, the idols, sprinkled a bit of holy water and just lived there and didn't really care about anything else. Richie finally had a proper base. He had social acceptance, not in a bad sense, but in a good sense. He had friends, he had contacts in high places, he had intellectual status, he had a professional reputation as a mathematician, astronomer, linguist, an all-round academic. It was time, Richie thought, to make another break for Beijing. Through his contacts with the censor, Richie and his companions took another boat up to Beijing. They made their way through all sorts of towns on that massive journey meeting scholars along the way. But they got very scared when they came to a town called Linting because it was controlled by one particularly brutal eunuch called Ma Tang. In a few months, they were, you know, they were basically stopped in their tracks. Ma Tang was a greedy, materialistic man. He went through all their belongings when they came past his town. He took everything in his possession, including their relics, including a relic of the True Cross, their chalices, all that type of stuff. He let them go up to Tianjin, which is right next to Beijing, but Ma Tang followed them. In a few months, word came from the capital, delegating to Ma Tang alone the decision whether or not to let Richie visit the capital and asking for a record of his gifts, which is when Ma Tang took them into his own possession. The problem was that when Ma Tung went through his baggage, he found a crucifix. He'd never seen one before and thought that it was a curse on the emperor. He said that these people were going to Beijing to seek the emperor to kill him. Eventually, Ma Tung returned to his town. They, were, they sort of got out of that spot of bother because the emperor remembered in this list of presents that they'd given a clock, and he really just wanted to see this clock. So he took the power away from Ma Tang 
and brought the Jesuits to Beijing, where they presented the clock. But before he did that, Richie rearranged all his relics. He took out all the major relics and hid them in his bag and put minor ones in there and in the, in the cross of relics and rebadged them. Then he wrote a full list of gifts for the emperor, including a painting of Christ, an, an actual antique painting of the Virgin Mary, a breviary threaded with gold, relics, a cross, an atlas, clocks, prisms, a clavichord, you know, like a harpsichord, mirrors, bottles, a rhinoceros tusk, always handy, sand clocks, the four gospels, four European belts, and samples of European cloth. The gifts were given over... Pardon? How did they get them off my tongue? Well, the, the clock did it. <laughs> the, um, the emperor just wanted to see the clock and took jurisdiction and power away from Martang and sort of came over the top and said, you know, bring them through. They reached Beijing. The gifts were given to the emperor through the bureaucracy of eunuchs and probably a few things got siphoned off here and there. This was another setback for Richie because he had no idea what the emperor actually received and what the eunuchs had kept for themselves. They waited outside and time ticked by and once again, this ticking of time was what saved them because the clocks ran dead in the imperial palace and the emperor wanted someone to come and fix them. So who did he go for? The Jesuits who brought them. Now this was, think about this, this is an imperial palace called the Forbidden City. Nobody got in unless you were the emperor, his concubines, or if you were a eunuch, part of this whole bureaucracy. People could go their whole lives living right next to the imperial palace and never, ever get in. Richie, from the hilltop town of Macharada, is the first European ever to set foot in the imperial palace. The eunuch who was guiding the Jesuits took them to the clock and asked them if they could be taught to regulate the clock and fix it. Richie said, yes, but you know it's going to take a few days. We might have to stay in this palace a little bit longer. They obliged, and Richie got to actually stay in the palace. The emperor was very amused by them and would send them questions about things that happened in Europe and how things are done, including how emperors were buried, because this particular emperor had been building his tomb since he was 18 or 19. And Richie, thankfully, had received a letter recently describing King Philip II's Requiem Mass and all the pomp and ceremony that went with it. So he was able to tell this to the emperor. So he actually had one-on-one conversations with the emperor? No, the emperor would send people to ask him questions and he would send answers back through these intermediaries. No one saw the emperor, basically. If, if you did appear in public, he wore a hat. You may see it in kung fu movies where there are pearls and beads hanging down the front so you can't actually see his face. He was a bit of a Nero. He was lazy, um, he was slothful, he was extravagant, he was pretty cruel. But... He was an inquisitive man. He asked for portraits to be painted of Richie and the other missionaries. And, you know, you have to understand, as I said before, that no one saw him face to face. Um, so they were never given an audience, really. They gave him a book of paintings of European palaces, which would have sparked his interest, and a picture of the Virgin and the Child, which he actually hung in his room in the Imperial Palace for a little while until he got a bit scared of it, because... 
photorealism, which was coming um, into vogue, I guess, in Counter-Reformation Europe, that wasn't the artistic style, and it would have, you can imagine it could have looked a bit you know, spooky to someone who'd never seen that style of oil painting before. So they put it away. His mum, the emperor's mum, actually put it away in a storeroom for him. So their time in the palace fixing clocks ran out, but they received another grace. Four of the imperial musicians came and asked the Jesuits to come to teach them how to play the, the harpsichord, which the empress had given to them. And this time, Richie and his companion, Pantoja, I haven't mentioned, I haven't mentioned a lot of his companions, but it was more than just Richie. He had, you know, men around him. They were actually installed formally in the palace and treated as teachers. You know, the imperial musicians came in and bowed before them, kowtowing before them. And they wouldn't get that treatment if they were still dressing as Buddhist monks. So the Jesuits passed on their knowledge about Western musicology, because of course the Chinese had a pentatonic scale, you know, the black notes of a piano, that's... That was pretty much their music um, that inhibited harmony and things like that in music. So, which you could pass this along because apart from being a mathematician, linguist, astronomer, and all these other things, he was a musician. He became, he used this time to make friends with people high up in the court. And the musicians eventually asked him to write some words for the, for the songs that he was teaching them because they were afraid that the emperor was going to ask them to sing and they wouldn't have any words and he would punish them. So Richie thought, okay, this is great, I'll, I will write some lyrics. And so he basically wrote Christian morality into these lyrics. One of these madrigals was called The True Way to Longevity. And I think the reason he wrote this is because the Chinese were obsessed with finding the key to long life. You know, And even now there are all sorts of superstitions about long life this or long life that. All garbage, really, because... You know, Richie had the key to long life. It was immortality through the saving blood of Jesus Christ. So the lyrics to this went as follows. True longevity is reckoned not by the number of years, but according to progress in virtue. If the Lord of heaven grants me one day more of life, he does so that I may correct yesterday's faults. Failure to do this would be a great sign of ingratitude. So you can see a Richie's using the Chinese way of thinking about gratitude to your ancestors, gratitude to those in authority, and putting that right before the emperor on a song, on a harpsichord, in the middle of China. It's, it's, if you think about it for a bit, it's, it's actually quite mind-blowing. You know, in these days, we can get on a plane. My mum got on a plane the other day, just before I went to work. By the end of the day, she, she'd messaged me from, from Singapore saying she was there. Richie would wait an average of six years to get a letter, a reply to one of his letters. And it would have been heartbreaking. You know, I said at the start, he said bye to his dad and that was it. At one point, someone wrote to him saying, your dad's dead. And he said, the, you know, the Requiem Novena. He mourned. And two years later, got a letter saying, oh, sorry, wrong info, your dad's alive. So he quickly wrote down a letter to his dad telling him about all these adventures. By the time he got back, his father was dead for real. So imagine just not knowing what's going on. Europe is so far away. So as the pattern seems to go in Richie's life, he then, after this period of success, 
ran into trouble. There was a man there, Tai Si Tai, who was the director of foreign embassies. He began to take out his frustrations on Richie because Ma Tang, the evil eunuch who stole all this stuff initially, had refused to let Tai offer Richie's gifts to the emperor and did it himself to, to gain all the glory. The argument ended up being this jostle jurisdiction between Ma Tang and Tai. It was sort of this epic bureaucratic battle. Um, it was obviously very important to, that, to them. But thankfully, Tai won out, and what he did was to take them, the Jews away from Ma Tang's jurisdiction, he set them up in this place called the Castle of the Barbarians. And that was this palace, basically, where foreign embassies came from all across the Middle East and probably from India and other parts of China. They weren't real embassies, they were really just trade missions. I mean, that happens now. I mean, an embassy has a very strong trade arm. This is what this was, except that they actually were apparently, you know, they were there with their merchandise. Now here they were sort of sequestered away from the reach of Martang and the rest of the evil and highly inconvenient bureaucracy. When they were here, the good news came that the ambassadors would be given an audience with the emperor and Richie must have been extremely excited by this prospect to actually talk to the Emperor of China. Everyone lined up in the Imperial Palace, which I have a picture of here. I don't know if any of you have been to China. That's the Forbidden City. It's a, it's a big square. In the middle there's a palace where the, where the Emperor sits. But it's a huge square which can fit probably hundreds of... Pardon? It can probably fit hundreds of thousands of people. And the emperor would have sat on his throne, which is this sort of thing. I don't know if that's the actual throne, but you could imagine the pomp. And everyone went up, knelt down before the emperor and you know, said 10,000 years to the emperor, to which the emperor said absolutely nothing and Richie was shuffled off. <laughs> so that was the closest he ever came to meeting the emperor. He saw him through his hat of pearls and beads protecting his face and that was it he was dismayed and went home and once again decided to think of a new tactic he turned back to the power of the written word and he asked he organized for a representative of a minister to deliver a formal letter to the emperor and it was quite a forthright letter it said we're not here to destroy you we're not here to be dissidents. We're here to preach the law of the law of the Lord of Heaven. And we thank you for letting us stay here, and we'd like to stay longer. And with that, he attached his catechism, just to be completely upfront, I suppose, and to say this is the doctrine that we're preaching. It's not a doctrine that is against the stability of the country. What you think about is the exact same criticism that is given to Catholics now by the communist government that it's a doctrine that seeks to bring foreign power and to usurp the power of the Chinese government. All these themes are very constant, I think. So, basically, there was a chilling lack of response. Eunuchs got their hands on it and, you know, another letter sort of went to the emperor instead of the actual letter. And these things were happening all the time. You know, 
people were putting things in their path, but at the same time, the mathematicians who wanted to run the clocks were getting a bit edgy because they were thinking the clocks are going to break and the emperor's going to execute us. Months passed, and Richie was completely sick with nervousness. Physically, he was sick. And through a contact, was actually allowed to be released. And very quickly, he was allowed to be released. They went back to the residence, and all of a sudden, they were being paid a sort of pension by the castle of barbarians to keep them... You know, to give them supplies. Of course, there are lots of details on this which can only, you, know, you could probably only get from re- reading Richie's actual diaries, but um, I'm sorry I haven't got down to that detail. And the emperor basically told them, you guys have to stay in Beijing, which he obviously was very happy to do. And so basically, after this whole period of turmoil, of trying to make their way to Beijing, of being, you know, really at being at the, at the mercy of people in the bureaucracy who had their own interests at heart, they could finally get into a bit of a rhythm of life. So Richie basically set about doing what he was best at, sitting there, receiving visitors, going to see friends. He would actually ride around on a horse with a black, you know, black cloth around his face to keep the dust out. You could imagine this tall Italian man disguised riding through the streets of Beijing from friend's house to friend's house, discoursing about religion and theology all day, every day, and returning home. And on top of this, still saying Mass, saying the office, and um, doing all the private devotions that they do in their community. He became so friendly with the mathematicians who had a vested interest in him keeping the clocks running that he was actually given free passage into the imperial palace, into the forbidden city. Quite amazing if we think about it. And he did various things. He authored books such as this that I talked about before. I'm not sure if he did that at that time. It could have been a bit later. And an atlas of China... Sorry, an atlas of the world. That's sort of a page from one of his maps, which um, was very. It was a high map. It took a year or so to complete. It had, you know, you can see Africa there, and Australia's not there yet. But there is a. Well, there's a great. It looks like I'm. I'm not sure. I'm not a. I've got no. Rick Robert would probably be good at this. Oh, he could do everything. He could draw, he could play music, he could... He was the Renaissance man. He was what Jesuit schools are meant to produce. He could talk to anyone at any level of society and, and know exactly what... and fit into any conversation in Chinese as well, as Portuguese and Spanish and Italian and Latin, and that's probably all he could speak at that time. No, Greek, and probably could read Hebrew as well. This is, interestingly, this map which he authored with a friend of his, was extremely popular, both in its original version and in classic Chinese style in the pirated version, which also made its rounds around Beijing. The year now was around 1601. News came from Nanjing, the old residence, that a prominent convert had died. And the family of the man asked Richie if the traditional Chinese funeral rites could be given to the dead man. They'd suppressed the overtly superstitious elements, 
but they wanted to keep other elements where they were, you know, strike each side of the coffin with a type of implement, things like that. The argument from the family was that it was devoid of superstitious elements. The rites in themselves were innocuous. They could be retained. And what was Richie's response? He said no. He said no. These are outrightly superstitious practices which have to be suppressed and you're not allowed to follow them. And the family was only allowed a simple Christian burial. And in my view, this is extremely important and incident to note because Ritchie, as I mentioned before, is often incorrectly used as an example of a pioneer of liturgical enculturation. The main reason for this is that the Chinese also had a practice of honouring their ancestors and Confucius in the form of offerings of fruit or food. And it became a very vexed question in the mission whether Chinese could continue to perform these practices. Um, because, you know, venerating Confucius was extremely important if you wanted to become a Mandarin, if you wanted to get anywhere in society. But on that point, you see, Ritchie agreed that they could... His view was that the Chinese could go on with these other practices of, gener of veneration. And in his words, well, sorry, in the words of, as described in the Catholic Encyclopedia of 1919, after having carefully studied what the Chinese classical books said regarding the rites of Confucius, and after having observed for a long time the practices of them, the practice of them, and questioned numerous scholars of every rank with whom he was associated during his 18 years of apostolate, a day-in, day-out discussion about religious topics. Ritchie was convinced that these rites had no religious significance, either in their institution or in their practice by the enlightened classes. The Chinese, he said, recognised no divinity in Confucius any more than in their dead ancestors, they prayed to neither. They made no requests nor expected any extraordinary intervention from them. In fact, they only did for them what they did for the living to whom they wished to show great respect. The honour they paid to their parents consists in serving them dead as they did living. They do not for this reason think that the dead come and eat the offerings of fruit or that they need them. They declare that they act in this manner because they know no other way of showing their love and gratitude to their ancestors. Likewise, what they do, especially the educated, they do to thank Confucius for his excellent doctrine which he left them in his books, and through which they obtained their degrees and mandarinships. Thus, in all this, there is nothing suggestive of idolatry, and perhaps it may even be said that there is no superstition. Now, this last line is interesting. Perhaps it may even be said that there is no superstition. Because to him, like a lot of practices, it could be superstitious depending on your attitude. But he saw that as accidental and that substantially, in his view, in his experience, these rites were not religious, as opposed to the burial rites, which he said were superstitious. Now, I believe the people who say that he was a liturgical enculturationist, if he just said, yep, do the funeral rites and you can venerate Confucius. But he made a very clear distinction. And we also turn our minds back to when he left Jiaoting and saw Wang, Wang Pan setting up 
really what would have looked like a temple to Ritchie and Ruggieri and himself, and distinguishing that from the idolatry of the Buddhists, which his followers in China were vigorously against. You know, the, the stories of him getting angry at his converts because they would go out and rob people's houses and steal their idols and burn them in the fire at home, and he'd come back and he'd smell rosewood lacquer burning and, you know, say, guys, you can't steal. I know we don't believe in idols, but you can't steal them and burn them. Is ancestor worshipping in Chinese culture a... Um, did they believe that life existed after death, or was it they just worshipped that or venerated that ancestor? I don't know if they believed in life after death. I guess they did believe in some form of life after death, but um, they venerated them through these practices. So, I mean, would that be very similar to honouring the souls in purgatory? No, I think it's... I think we've got to be honest, it's very different. They're not praying for their release. They're honouring their memory. You light a candle in front of a picture of, you know, someone in your family who's died, that type of thing. But obviously, it's a much more vexed question. It's not that simple. Um, but there's a big difference between Buddhism and Confucianism. That's true, and especially at that point, Confucianism was seen as a, as a system of governance, Buddhism and Taoism was seen as a very low form of religion which was just mixed up in a completely illogical garble of philosophy and superstition and idolatry. And That's not my view, that's not Richie's view, that's the view of his friends and all these mandarins. They wanted to distance themselves, which is why his friends said, look, you've got to get out of this monk's habit, <laughs> you know, put on a tie sort of thing, you know, look respectable. This was what he was getting from within Chinese culture, if anyone, you know, comes along and says that people are being whatever, racist or culturally arrogant. Um, basically, this whole question of the ancestral rights was eventually suppressed. It was Pope... Where is he? Basically, Pope... Clement XI forbade the rites in 1705, um, despite Ritchie's view and despite the practice of the Jesuits. And I should just mention, too, to, to give more credence to Ritchie's actions, burial, the whole burial superstition, it wasn't as if that was any lower in importance than the veneration of Confucius. One of Richie's friends spent 150 ducats. That must have been, I think that means it's a lot of money, on a cedar coffin for his father. Another convert spent 15 ounces of, of silver on Richie's coffin. The Chinese would, I think even now in a lot of places, buy their coffins while you're alive, like the emperor did, but obviously his was on a bit of a grand scale, and leave the coffin in the house so you can look at that and say, I think it's actually a good practice. You can look at that and say, that's where I'll be. And I saw a great picture once of a modern Chinese Catholic, or modern, probably from the 1930s or 40s, with a traditional Chinese coffin. He's sitting in front of it with a Bible and a crucifix and carved in Chinese characters on the side of the coffin was, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh. And he would have seen that every day in his house, this coffin. So to me, it's important to see that for the, for the burial question, Richie didn't hold this view, but for the ancestral veneration, he did hold this view. The important thing is that, ultimately, 
whatever side you're on, and the Dominicans were on the other side. And one explanation for this is that the Dominicans ended up working with the lower classes of society who were more prone to superstition because they were less educated. Richie really was hanging around the cream, the cream of society. So they were able to distinguish between superstition and you know, rites of veneration. The important thing is that everyone obeyed the Pope, as you should. He forbade the rites in 1705, and from 1705 to 1939, Catholics were not allowed to practice those rites. It's arguable that this meant that the number of conversions was slower. fact is that that was the Pope's word, and there you go. Pope Pius XII reversed that in 1939, but to me, by that time, the issues had been dead. The Communist Revolution was going to happen in 10 years. Examinations for the Mandarin were not going to happen anymore within a decade of him lifting that. And to be honest, although I've seen advertisements for Chinese masses, and I know friends in Chinese community who tell me that they have masses where they do do these ancestral things. I mean, I know a lot of Chinese people and no one does these practices at home ever. So I don't know why people are incorporating them into mass. I wonder why the past the 12th actually did that. I think, but maybe, I don't know. I'm just going to speculate. This is a whole other talk in itself. Maybe it was because by that time the issue was dead. You know, by 1939 you had the colonial era. There were Christians all over Shanghai, Canton. There were free churches running. You know, Bishop Fulton Sheen preached in Shanghai in French in the mid-1930s. Richie persisted with his evangelization. I'll finish soon. I know it's getting a bit late. Five minutes. Five minutes. All right. I'll skip. Basically, basically, he continued doing all these things. He wrote books. He translated the Euclid's you know, books on geometry with good friends of his. He made high-ranking converts such as Paul Shu, this guy, who was a great collaborator, collaborator with Ritchie in, in translating because Ritchie still needed you know, some assistance with expressing himself. By 1610, Ritchie had been in China for 27 years. He achieved the almost impossible task of setting up a permanent Jesuit, Jesuit house in Beijing. He never got to talk to the emperor face to face, although he talked to his face. But he'd come closer to doing that than anybody else in China, let alone Europe. Perhaps miraculously, he even gained a tax exemption for the Jesuit house. That's a sign of God's grace. His friends and contacts in Peking were many, and thousands lined up to discourse with him about various topics to the end of his life. His writings were famous throughout the whole educated class of China, and apparently they are still known today. The recent Venice Film Festival actually showed a movie about Matteo Ricci's life. Um, which I'd love to get my hands on. But apparently in China, he is a bit well-known. I know there's a public park in Shanghai to Paul Xu, and you know, to the extent that Christianity is known within that world, Richie is known very much so. And that's the thing, that's an important thing for us. People will often say that Christianity came to China through 
the colonial presence in the 19th and 20th centuries. That may be true for the Protestant missionaries, but we were there back in the day. We were there in the 16th century. We were there in the early 1600s with Ritchie, not just distributing the Bible through the Bible Society, but becoming, like Christ did, becoming one of the people in order to understand them and give to them the truth to the extent that he could. Was he? A, did he succeed? I, I don't know. Numerically, he was a failure, I guess. 27 years, he'd made 2,500 converts. It was nothing. You know, St. Francis Xavier would baptise that many in the first two hours of, you know, between Matins and Lords, maybe, you know. But then again, look at Japan now. The state of the church there is quiet. You know, it's, it's lower, I guess. And in China, perhaps because of persecution, it's much stronger. And a lot of it, I think, is because of this method of enculturating Catholicism in a good way. You know, in the 30s, in the 20s, 30s, and up to the 40s, the Jesuits had whole villages which were Catholic, who had their own local customs of intermarriage with other Catholic villages, and all these things which really steeled them against the attacks of the communists. There's a great story from about 1989 where government um, sort of family planning units were sent to Catholic villages, and when they drove in, the Catholics basically pelted them with rocks, literally, from buildings from everywhere until they first ran and hid in a hotel, which the Catholics pelted with rocks for the whole night and sent them packing. That sort of strength came from this method of evangelization, which wasn't just telling you the truth, but making the truth yours in your language. That's his strength. After years of doing this, you know, it had taken a toll on his health. If you could imagine spending your whole life being a social butterfly in a much more deep sense, never refusing visitors, always receiving them with a smiling face, with sincerity, engaging with them with the questions that they wanted to give to you, to ask you. And, you know, it took a toll on him and basically he died at home with the sacraments in no big sort of way in the year 1610 with the comfort of the last rites. Now, there's a great little snippet from one of Paul Shue's prefaces to one of Richie's books. So I'll end with this just before I say something quickly about what he can teach us about apologetics. I found Lee Manto, that was his Chinese name, by chance in Nanjing. And after a short conversation, realised that he was the most learned man in the whole world. His fame spread throughout the Middle Kingdom and the wisest and most famous men went to visit him. Amidst troubles and adversity, during conversation or at dinner, it is impossible to find in a thousand million of his words a single one contrary to the great principles of loyalty to the emperor and filial piety. Not one which does not bring peace of mind and strengthen the moral code. In ancient times, the kiosk where the phoenixes built their nests was considered by the court a precious object, ensuring peace and stability in the empire. Today, we have the true man, learned and great, who brings our moral code to completion and protects our court.
Is he not a treasure even more precious? Let us praise him to the heights. So just quickly, a couple of minutes, what can we learn about him from an apologetical point of view? I think these five points. Firstly, charity is the key. Richie was always open and friendly to all who came to see him. Secondly, use your talents for God. I don't think, you know, there's a trend now that you've got to be a professional Catholic to be a Catholic. You've got to get a degree in theology, which is all good. And it's great we've got people here with those degrees, but excel in your field. If it's mathematics, be the best mathematician you can be. If it's languages, be the best you can be. If it's being a doctor, through your profession, you can show people in the same way that Rich, in the exact same way that Richie did, that maybe your not not your success, but your devotion and your 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 effort has something to do with with your faith. Thirdly, patience. Richie must have felt terrible his whole life, I think. Just so many setbacks the whole time. But I think he realised that grace was what got him through, not his efforts. And it would be very tempting for someone as smart as that to think that he could do it by himself. Fourthly, be tactful. Richie had to constantly adapt his strategies. Is it the most wise thing to tell someone something in a certain way when maybe you should think about it in another way. You know, is it better in a particular situation to get on the soapbox and say something loudly, or is it better, as in Richie's case, to do it in a more subtle way? Perfect example. You can't just go around saying you're wrong, China. You've got to sort of say it in other ways, and, and Richie would do that. I mean, that example of similes before is sort of the way that you could get around insulting someone like that. And I think the last thing, realise you don't win them all. 2,500 converts in 27 years across 12 men or 15 men that they had. Numerically, not very good, but it's all the will of God. You win some, you lose some. And I think that's the great story of his life. You know, he didn't make many converts, but what a man. What a way to use your talents for God and not to waste them. What a way to, to live your life zealously and to do it until the end. And what dedication to leave the hilltop town of Maturada and die with a few of your Jesuit companions around you um, in China. Richie still lies there today. That's his tombstone. He's in a nondescript area of a high school and I think he's buried close to, to Arlette's great-great-grandfather. Great-grandfather. Great-grandfather. <laughs> so, um, thank you for listening to me. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Thomas Koch. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.